We're winding up a series today, a three-part three series, God Owns Everything. And our focus today is on worship like God owns everything. Psalmist exalts in Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. If that's true, and it is, then we ought to worship like God owns everything. Now, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? I suspect it is what we're doing right now, this time that we spend together on Sunday morning. And probably if we got even more specific than that, you would say, well, it is the part that we just finished. It is the music portion, the part that Tim has been leading because after all, Tim is the worship leader. This is the preaching part of the service. Tim takes care of the worship part of the service. Well, if Tim is the worship leader, what does that make me? Non-worship big mouth? I don't know. I'm just simply saying that we have so finely, de finely defined what worship is that we've locked out a lot of great possibilities. Have you ever heard a preacher say when we got to the end of a worship section of music, say, oh, that was great. Or sometimes a worship leader says, oh, that was great. If you don't like it here, you aren't going to like it in heaven because it is an everlasting worship service there. Have you ever heard that? That kind of unnerves me. Now, I'll be real honest with you. Sounds pretty boring to me. I mean, after all, I don't want to sit in pew number 20,876 and listen to Tim lead music for 10,000 uninterrupted years. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, is, is that what that means? Is that what worship is all about? How about a 500-year-long sermon? I don't think so. Unless you believe that heaven is about slumber and sleep, then those people will be comfortable. You see, we have, we have so limited our vision of what worship is that we, we confine it to these walls. Now, what we do here is definitely a part of worship, but it's not all that worship should be. So what is worship? Well, let me tell you first what it is not. Nelson Searcy identifies four worship myths. Worship happens on one day each week. Worship is a religious activity. Worship is just part of my life. Worship is all about me. Let's take them just for a moment simply. Myth number one, worship happens one day each week. Now, it's true that we have come together in an act of worship before God, but there's so much more to the concept. This time that we meet together on a Sunday morning, I believe, is incredibly important. I also believe it's very biblical. I believe the scriptures commands us as the body of Christ to come together. And the ancient church came together on the first day of the week, just like we do, with the purpose of gathering around the Lord's table and the proclamation of God's word and, and what we enjoy. I believe this is all so important. But if this is all that you do from a standpoint of worship, then you and I have misunderstood what God means by the concept of worship. Myth number two, worship is a religious activity. Now, that, that really limits it. If we say, well, worship takes place whenever anything religious or spiritual is happening. Okay. Uh, in a few moments, after, at the end of the service today, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. That is certainly a beautiful religious moment. Whenever we see somebody baptized over here, it is a beautiful spiritual moment in time. If you take that and you say, that, now that's where worship takes place, or this is where worship takes place. It is true. Communion is a beautiful act of worship. 
But if you limit it to simply those moments and times or those events and times that have spiritual impact, it again limits it to much. Worship is more than just a religious activity. Myth number three, worship is just a part of my life. Listen, folks, if we only eat healthy once in a while or exercise occasionally, our bodies are going to suffer the consequence. It takes discipline to eat healthily and exercise properly. And part of the reason it takes discipline is that unhealthy food tastes so much better than healthy food. Uh, exercise is the same thing. I mean, I enjoy walking and invigorating activity, but let's face it, most exercise is not fun. I don't like the ups of exercise. Sit-ups, chin-ups, push-ups, pull-ups. I'm much more comfortable with the downs. I'd prefer to step down, sit down, slow down, or even get down. I'll gladly help with a countdown, cheer for a touchdown, sing at a hoedown. You give me a piece of pie, I'll snarf it down, all right? <laughs> you see, when it comes to exercise, I don't like the ups because ups are the opposite of gravity. Gravity is a law, and the Bible says I'm supposed to obey the law. <laughs> see how easy it is to rationalize what we don't like to do or what we don't want to do? But my body needs regular exercise. It needs healthy foods. I need to find that balance. Just a random moment here or there, eating right or exercising right won't do the job. The same is true of worship. What healthy food and exercise is to the body, worship is to the soul. And our souls will suffer the consequences if our worship is only a part of our life. If it's only occasional. Worship cannot be just a part. It must permeate who I am and what I do. Myth number four, worship is all about me. I saw a bumper sticker on a car. It's been some time ago, but the bumper sticker said, it's all about me. Who puts a bumper sticker like that on their car? I mean, you may think that, but to advertise it to the whole world, I mean, that's pretty brazen, don't you think? But it is emblematic of our self-focused world. It's sometimes difficult to find God when we're focused on so many other things that apply and pertain to us. Now, you be honest with me this morning, okay? Be honest. When you walk out of here this morning, we all grade Sunday morning based on our preferences. How did I feel? What did I like? What didn't I like? What did I get out of that service? You may go home and say, well, it was okay this week, but the sermon was just flat. It just didn't pertain to me today. Or Tim didn't pick any of my favorite songs this week. I'm, I'm sort of disappointed with what happened at church today. We do that. But it's, it's, it's not about me. Now, if you think I don't understand, you're, you're wrong. I, I may have the hardest time worshiping in this place of anybody here. I'm just being real honest with you right now. When I sit down here, before I get up here, I'm constantly analyzing. We should have done this here. Well, we should have put that there. We should have done this better. Elsie can tell you, whenever we go on vacation and we're away from here and we go to visit some other church and worship there, I'm doing the same thing through the service. Ah, I wouldn't want to do that back in Sherwood Oaks. Boy, I'd never say that in a sermon. Woo! You know. <laughs> I cannot... I cannot remove myself from this. So if, if you think it's 
hard for you. It is, it is equally hard for me. And we're always focused on, what am I getting out of this? How is this making me better? And there is an aspect of improvement in our lives. But worship is not all about me. As a matter of fact, it's not about me at all. So what then is worship? In truth, genuine worship is our lifestyle before God. How we think, how we act, how we behave at every moment in the presence of God who owns everything and who is everywhere present. Your work should be lifted up and offered to God as an act of worship. Your family time should be offered up as an act of worship before God. Your hobbies, your pastimes ought to be offered up as an act of worship before God. Now, I don't mean by that that all your family spent singing all the time or you're always in the, in the scriptures or that you got your eye on a Bible at work and the other eye on your computer screen. That's not what I mean. It is the awareness of the fact that your job is a gift from God, that your family is a gift from God, that your hobbies, your pastimes, the joys, the, the things that you enjoy doing is a gift from God. And so everything we do should be lifted back up to him as an act of worship with a conscious awareness that he is here, that he owns everything, that my life is his, and that I ought to act worshipfully before him all the time. Theologian Karl Barth wrote, formation does not refer to certain programs but to the lifelong process of being conformed to the image of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. You see, worship is a daily formation in Christ. That's why a lifestyle of worship matters. In a better word, I like the word living worship. Living worship will form us into the likeness of Christ on a daily basis. And you say, well, how does that formation begin? Well, let me give you just a glimpse. Let me give you three steps toward that formation process. Step number one. Be aware of who God is. Worship cannot happen until we get a glimpse of who God is. Now, in Psalm 135, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 135. We're going to go through part of this psalm this morning. <clears throat> psalm 135, verse 5 says this. I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes the clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends the lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Again, the psalmist is just writing about all the grandeur of God and all that he owns and controls. Now, two weeks ago in the sermon, we, uh, we showed a, a brief video that, that compared the earth to the size of the, uh, of the largest star in our galaxy and, the, and the, just the awesome nature of that. And that's only one galaxy. Do you know what I learned this week? In, in the October 2016 Astrophysical Journal, the, the astronomers who did this study reported that there are now, they believe, two trillion galaxies in the universe. Now, from, from what they've seen through the Hubble telescope and other observatories around the world, these astronomers just have figured out that the universe is 10 times greater, larger, more expansive than what we believed just a very short time ago. Two trillion, not stars, two trillion galaxies. How awesome is our God. And, and here's the thing, we, we often look to the, to the heavens and to these great things to get the greatness of our God, but it works in the opposite direction too. You go to the smallest things and you can see God's fingerprint over all of it. Go to the tiny cell, that which we cannot see with our eye, that which we used to think was the most basic 
part of life. Do you realize that in, in your cell, the cells of your human body, there are molecular machines moving cargo from one side of the cell to the other side, that there are on and off switches that, you, that your cell will throw back and forth because of the things that that cell is required to do. It is amazing that the smaller you go, the more awesome the power of God becomes as well. Our skin is the largest bodily organ and covers the entire surface of our body. It's what you see in the mirror when you get up in the morning. But do you realize how incredible it is? Now, the skin actually has three layers, but we're going to talk about simply the outer layer, the epidermis, which, by the way, has multiple layers too. Just talk about the, the part that you see, which is about as thick as the plastic wrap we use to seal up leftover foods like Glad Wrap or Saran Wrap or something like that. Are you ready for this? Your skin, the outer layer, is comprised of dead cells, tightly attached to one another to resist wear and tear. But we lose 40,000 of these cells every minute, or about nine pounds of skin every year. Some of us could stand to lose a little bit more than that every year, but <laughs> we lose about nine pounds of skin every 40,000 cells every minute, but do not panic. Are you ready for this? New cells are generated at a rate that precisely matches cell loss, keeping the skin just perfect all the time. It really is God's miracle wrap. And you thought beauty was only skin deep. Look at what God has created and sustains throughout life. I think, I think to, get, to get a grasp of who God is, not only do you read his word and make that a, a priority. I, I loved what John had to say. He read the Bible all the way through in his seventh grade year. Not only making his word our priority, but look around at the things that, that surround us and realize that God owns everything, that God created everything, and it will give you a glimpse into his greatness. Number two, be thankful for what God has done. Psalm 135, verses one through three. Listen, listen to the, the exultation in these verses. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, you servants of the Lord, you who minister in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praise to his name, for that is pleasant. The word praise is a word that just simply erupts with thanksgiving and gratitude. Worship should be filled with praise. It's when we recognize God for his greatness and for what he has done for us. After all, the whole theme of the Bible is about what God is up to to bring us to him to procure salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's why we sing when we come together. Because there's something about music that, that makes praise come easier. I mean, the book of Psalms is all about these songs that are accompanied by musical instruments. Music touches the soul. Music brings tears quicker than anything else. Mo music moves us. Music fills heaven from what we read in Scripture. I mean, music is just absolutely powerful. That's why we sing when we come together, because we sing songs of praise. By the way, new research shows that group singing increases levels of secretory immunoglobulin A, an antibody that serves as the first line of defense against bacterial and viral infections. People who sing in groups, in choirs, or congregational worship have lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol and better moods than the average person. You want a good reason to come to church and sing? It'll make you feel better. It'll make you healthier. 
And why should that surprise us? I don't think there's anything coincidental about that. I think when God taught us to sing his praise, it just releases the good that he has built into our systems. What God has done for us should bring us into a sense of deep gratitude that we'd want to exalt his name. Isabel Ralston was right on target when she wrote this. Worship is the only gift we can bring to God that he himself has not first given us. Oh, have you stopped to think about it? If God owns everything and, he's do- and he does, we can't give back to God anything that he doesn't already own except for our gratitude and our worship. The one thing that you and I can bring to God that he did not give us first is our gratitude and worship. That's why living our lives in an attitude of worship is so critical. Did you show up here this morning with an awareness of thanksgiving? Or did you come out of a sense of obligation? Maybe Sunday morning's just a habit. If you haven't yet really stopped to think about how thankful you are before God, I want you to do something. Just take your bulletin right now, take one of those pins out of the pew or a pin out of your pocket or purse, and you can listen to me and you can write at the same time. I just want you to start thinking about everything in your life for which you have to be thankful and just start making a list, all right? Because I'm afraid sometimes if we don't consciously start making a list, we, it just gets lost in the shuffle. And God does call us to this attitude, this life of worship. More than 250 times in the Bible, the word worship appears. Alexander Patterson over 100 years ago described worship like this. To worship God is to make him the supreme object of our esteem and delight both in public, private, and secret. In other words, it is our life. It is our highest priority. Worship is living your life and doing what you do to honor God because you are ever so grateful for what he has done. Hosea 6.6, God says, I don't want your sacrifices, I want your love. I don't want your offerings, I want you to know me. Timothy Christensen put it this way, "If if worship is just one thing we do, everything becomes mundane. If worship is the one thing we do, everything takes on eternal significance. Last thing, be thoughtful in responding to God. I think part of our problem in living worship is our thoughtlessness. We get carried away with so many different things and God gets lost in the shuffle. Now listen again to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 135, this time verse 15. The idols of the nation are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they cannot speak, eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, nor is their breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. John MacArthur wrote, worship is our innermost being responsible. Bonding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words based on the truth of God as he revealed himself. You see, we don't turn to idols of gold or silver or wood or stone. God has revealed himself to us in Christ, and that is where we find our impetus for worship. But our problem is that we get caught up in so many different kinds of worship that God gets lost in the shuffle. 
We get caught up in the adoration of film and sports celebrities. We, we worship at the altar of our bank accounts. We seek out the gods and goddesses of some new pleasure, thinking that it will bring ultimate satisfaction. But the only thing that happens when we do that is that we become like those we worship. Blind, deaf, speechless, breathless. You see, only God can speak into our hurt and pain. Only God will listen when you cry out. Only God can see what no one else can see in our lives. But he gets lost in the shuffle if we worship anything and everything else. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, he said, a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. So how do we make sure that we do not lose sight of God with all that competes for our attention? I think it begins when we start being thoughtful to give back to him what really is valuable to us. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I know this. If I don't invest any time or resources in something, I really, I really don't care much about that something. But if I'm invested, I care. So give him back your time. By the way, your time is his already anyway. He just says, I want part of it back. So when, you know, I don't know about you. I don't have a lot of extra time. You don't have a lot of extra time. So I'm really careful where I spend my extra time. If you invest it in serving God, then you'll care about what God cares about, giving back some of your time, giving back what you have. Most people view the weekly offering that we took up right before the sermon this morning as sort of a, an ugly necessity, an uncomfortable part of the service. Wish there was some other way we could take up an offering. Well, we do. We have lots of ways that we can take up an offering. Um, I know that in our household, we, uh, we give the church permission just to take our offering right out of our, our account at the, at the bank. That way the church gets it every month at the same time. I, it works for us. I, I really like doing that. But if you think we're ever going to just simply get away from having the offering plates passed, I don't think that'll happen because this is a moment of worship. This is not the church taking care of business. This is not the business side of the church. This is an act of worship. When I give to the Lord's church, it is my way of giving to him. After all, the church is his body. It's his bride. It's his family. It's his kingdom. I can't throw money up into heaven, but I can give it to that which God established in this world, which is the only soul-saving institution that God gave. And so this is my way of giving back to God when I give back to his bride. If someone saved your life, not, I mean, risking everything in order to accomplish it, would you find it burdensome to say thank you? You see, when you come to the offering time, don't look at it as obligation. Look at it as an opportunity to express thanks. Now, hear me carefully. If the church had enough money that would last a thousand lifetimes, if all the missionaries that we support had enough money to last a thousand lifetimes, I would still need to give. I give not because God needs it, but because I need to give. It is a reminder to me that God owns everything everything. And lest I become greedy and forgetful that it is not all mine, God calls me to give back to him. It's also a, an expression of trust in his promise. If we put him first, he'll take care of the things of our lives. I've never seen him fail. And you say, well, how much should I give? Well, I don't know. That's between you and God. I can't answer that question for you. I can tell you what I think is a real good starting place. 
uh, I believe that the, the Bible's principle of a tithe, 10%, is a good place to start. In the Old Testament, the Bible says the tithe is the Lord's. Whether we give it or not, it, it belongs to him. And, and, and I, I got to tell you, I, it, it just does work. I've been tithing ever since I had a paper out in seventh grade. And I've never seen God fail. Now, that's not where we stop, but it is a good starting point. Because when I give, the 90% plus whatever blessing God pours out upon our life for being obedient is far more valuable than the 100% we started with. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. He'll take money from a grouch too, but God loves a cheerful giver. So hear me carefully. If you can't give without being grouchy, then don't give. Wait till you can give it cheerfully. Folks, when I was a younger minister, I dreaded talking about giving because I didn't want people to think that's what I talk about all the time. And those of you who are around here and have been around for a long time know that's not what I talk about all the time. But I'm too old. I'm too old to care anymore. I know what's right. I know what the Bible has to say. And I will not apologize for teaching that when we give back to him, when we invest of our time and our resources, we care deeply about the things that God cares about. Which brings me to that last thing that you give, and that's your heart. He owns that too, remember? Twice he owns it. He made your heart, and he bought your heart with the blood of his son. When we cling to our heart, our life, our soul, we always make a mess of it. And when your heart doesn't belong to God, worship isn't genuine either. This week, we'll gather with family and friends across the nation, and we'll celebrate Thanksgiving. We would do well to remember the source of our gratitude. The Puritan pilgrims, when they settled in this brand new land, lost half of their number in that first year. They planted 50 graves on the hillside. But after that first harvest, they knew there was one who deserved their praise and their thanks and their offering of gratitude. The, the pilgrim Puritans had a saying, he who has God and everything else does not have more than he who has God alone. Isn't that great? That's true. If God owns everything and you have the Lord in your life, you've got everything. And worship becomes the greatest expression of thanks ever.